Live from WNUR News, I'm Alex Harrison. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Monday, October 3rd, 2022. Tonight on WNUR News, Northwestern updates its monkeypox messaging, black content creators continue to face roadblocks, and therapeutic uses for psychedelics show promise. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thank you for tuning in, and welcome back to WNUR News. We appreciate your support and listenership as we start our 22-23 broadcast year. In Campus Local tonight, in September, 26 gay and queer-identifying faculty published an op-ed in the Daily Northwestern in response to Northwestern's initial monkeypox messaging that deflected its potential impact on campus. Then, a month after the first email, Northwestern sent out a revised version that took into account faculty's concerns. Professor Chad Horn, who drafted the op-ed, spoke with Justine Fisher about Northwestern's response to the virus. August 9th, and Northwestern sent out an email titled, Information About Monkeypox. Dear students, the email detailed that monkeypox was spread through skin-to-skin contact, claiming it was not an STD then linked outside resources for vaccination and offered limited isolation and medical leave options. Notably, it read, based on information provided through these discussions about the nature of the virus and its spread, we do not expect a large number of monkeypox cases on campus. At the same time, cases of the virus were peaking. Just the day before, on August 8th, the U.S. was up to 600 cases. Today, the CDC reports 25,851 cases. Assistant Professor of Instruction in the Department of Philosophy, Chad Horn, took immediate issue with Northwestern's initial message as it failed to present the full picture of who was affected by monkeypox. Signed by 26 gay and queer-identifying faculty, Horn drafted an op-ed published in The Daily addressing the insufficiencies in the university's initial statement. Uh, and so the the concern that we that we had, me meaning we meaning you know myself and the, the other people who who drafted the letter, was that there might be students at Northwestern who are not getting the information that they need to make informed choices about how to protect themselves, about how to protect other people in their community. Uh, and so we thought it was important to get that message out there. Uh, so you know, in particular, um, if you just say, hey, this is a disease that isn't related to sexual orientation, this isn't an STI, and you leave it at that, that's really objectively pretty misleading. Um, You know, we can argue about what is or isn't technically an STI, but it's clear that monkeypox is overwhelmingly spreading through sex. Um, And, of course, you know, viruses don't discriminate based on sexual orientation. Uh, And so in that sense, you know, this is not a a gay disease. Um, But it is clear that, you know, men who have sex with men are, uh, you know, again, overwhelmingly those who are most at risk. In general, he was concerned that by glossing over the risk of the virus, the message excluded the most vulnerable and the most at risk. Not to say that nobody ever gets monkeypox through household transmission. It's not to say that nobody ever gets monkeypox through, uh, you know, uh, fomites, uh, surface transmission. Uh, But it's very, very rare, right? It's really, really, really uncommon. You know, from that point of view, maybe there aren't major problems with it. Um, Our concern in writing the op-ed was precisely that, well, we, we do have people in our community who are in 
these who are in these groups who are at risk, and they need to hear the the message about uh, you know about what's what's really going on here and what they can do to reduce their risk. However, Horn gave credit to the university that the message's vagueness and failure to mention that the virus primarily affects men having sex with men seemed to be in an effort to reduce stigma. Then on September 21st, they sent out an updated message, which was drafted with input from faculty, that Horn felt reflected the progress they made towards taking monkeypox more seriously. It seems like the university is going to make some effort to make monkeypox vaccine available on campus to people who are at risk, uh, which would mean uh, you know, men who have sex with men and people who are in, in the sexual networks of men who have sex with men. Uh, yeah, so over the last couple of weeks, it seems like the, the administration has, has been uh, responding not only with more effective communication, but also with some concrete action that will, uh, that will hopefully uh, you know, help protect our, our students and, and our community. Still, Horn potentially sees a real risk to the community over the spread of monkeypox. The likelihood of a, of a large outbreak on, 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 at a place like Northwestern is, is probably relatively low, but not, not impossible. Uh, and, uh, and it depends a lot on, I think, on the kinds of steps that, uh, that, that people take in terms of reducing their risk, you know, getting, getting vaccinated, having frank conversations with partners about, uh, about, about sexual risk and, and sexual behaviors. He added that part of reducing risk is not repeating the same public health messaging mistakes reminiscent of the COVID-19 pandemic. He said that when officials calibrate information in order to promote a particular behavioral response, they're likely to be wrong, like when masking was discouraged because it may give people a false sense of security. I think you could very easily imagine a similar thing with monkeypox, right? You tell people it's not a sexually transmitted infection, uh, you know, you, you can easily get it through surfaces, you can easily get it through casual contact, um, is that going to decrease stigma against gay people or would it increase stigma, right? I mean, if you tell people there's this, this kind of scary disease and it's overwhelmingly found among gay people, but you could get it through casual social contact with them, like that sounds to me like a really good reason to stay away from, from gay people, right? Um, so again, you know, th- th- there's good reason to imagine that this, you know, this kind of uh, armchair psychology is just going to backfire, And then, of course, there's just the problem that eventually the truth is going to come out, right? People are going to realize what's going on, and they're going to figure out that you're not being totally honest with them. And I think that contributes to an atmosphere where, uh, you know, uh, people feel like public health officials are are not trustworthy or not not worth listening to. Northwestern's latest message about monkeypox, sent on September 21st, includes not only specific reference to who is most affected by monkeypox, but also a link to a Northwestern Medicine Student Health Service webpage with details about monkeypox symptoms, transmission, treatment, vaccination, and other resources. Justine Fisher, WNUR News. Moving on to arts and entertainment, black content creators have long struggled on their respective platforms across the internet. In light of a black creator, Twitch streamer Kai Sanat, finding major success this past week, Emily Tiatonio is here to remind us of the persisting difficulties. Kai Sanat, a YouTuber and streamer known for his pranking content, has rapidly grown in the entertainment sphere over the past couple months. Are you coming back tomorrow? No, you're not. Yes, no, you're not. You're never invited ever again. You're never invited ever again. I don't want to see you ever again. You look dusty. Just last week, with 80,000 subscribers, he became the most subscribed to English-speaking creator on Twitch, a streaming platform. 
However, Senat noted how black creators are treated differently. People of my color hasn't been through, bro, we've been unrecognized, bro, and I refuse. I'm telling you right now, I refuse for my community to go unnoticed. There's not one time I've seen anybody in my community on the front page of your platform, bro. Twitch and other platforms have had issues regarding the black community in the past. Since the beginning of the year, smaller streamers struggled with hate raids. These raids are categorized by a boost of viewership from bots, spamming racist rhetoric in streamers' chats. And these kinds of things have been happening. So was that was that the first time that you really saw it as being like, oh my god, okay, so this they're, they're seeking me out? Or had the sort of sporadic ones that you'd seen leading up to that been of a similar nature? Or were they just... No, no I think I think they were kind of dipping their toe in. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. They were yeah. seeing what they could get away with and what they couldn't. Sure. sure. Um, but that was the first one that was like specifically targeted at me personally. Yeah. It wasn't just the you know this channel's overrun by the or own, is owned by the KKK. Mm. Like it wasn't that because I've I've seen that before. Like that's not original. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right, and yeah. it's like okay. In May, the hashtag Twitch Do Better trended. Twitch finally responded after it trended again in August by rolling out an update to the chatting experience. However, in the past week, gambling was immediately banned on the platform after it was discovered a streamer used the platform to scam viewers and other streamers due to their gambling addiction. This caused many black creators to feel neglected by the platform as Twitch was not so fast to react with their issues. Black creators have suggested to implement IP banning and two-step authorization to lessen the harassment of bots, but all were ignored. Reggett Raven, known for starting the hashtag, told the Washington Post, I'm tired of feeling like I'm not allowed to exist based off of circumstances that are out of my control, and I know other people are too. Twitch is not the only platform where content creators struggle. Back in August, Corey Kenshin, a family-friendly gaming YouTuber, came out with a video speaking on how he feels treated differently by YouTube for being black. Kenshin notes how other content creators with similar content were not being age-restricted, but his videos were. Age restriction causes videos to not be seen by as many viewers and are less likely to be promoted, interfering with their ability to grow. And admittedly, I cannot 100% prove that race had everything to do with this. But I can tell you the people on that policy team, those shadow people that are anonymous and get to enact their will however they see fit. How can we be sure that they take a black person's video and a white person's video and it can be the same exact video and they restrict the black person's video but not the white person's video? These situations always coincide with an uptick of growth and it always just comes off like we can't let this black guy get too high up i mean if i'm wrong i'm wrong his video enlightened many content creators to speak out on the connection between race and growth on social media platforms kai Sinat now sits at 104,470 subscribers on twitch gaining over 20,000 in the span of a week Zinat and other creators spoke on Twitch's lack of acknowledgement of his success on the platform. Although he sits at the top, he used his platform to remind the viewers that much of his community continues to struggle, that the issues of the past persist, and that black creators remain suppressed. And out there in oddities. Psychedelic drugs have a controversial history, both on and off college campuses. But studies are showing that these substances have great potential for therapeutic use. Here's reporter Allison Rauch with more. Last spring, Jacob Millendorf came up with an idea for a club. 
he wanted a space to discuss a topic he's passionate about. I've kind of been fascinated with psychedelics for a while. I really see it as like one of the most interesting, say, puzzles, academic puzzles. My my kind of aim as a human being, like a lot of these philosophical questions, like how do I lead the best life? How do I be the best person I can be? How do I be happy? And psychedelics seem to answer a lot of those questions. Millendorf was inspired by his cousin at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She told him about the psychedelics club she goes to. I kind of heard that and I was like, "Well, I can't believe that you go like you go to a club every week for this, and this is like university sanctioned." And she was like, "Yeah, no, it's great." Um, and like you know, we don't we don't do like no one does psychedelics. We talk about psychedelics. We um, kind of try to tap into like the psychedelic experience without drugs, so like meditation art. Millendorf looked into similar clubs at other universities. He used this information to propose a club at Northwestern. All of the values were taken off of Harvard's website for their psychedelics club, which is an official Harvard club. It's not like a underground. So I went through the regular club process, um, and I don't know exactly how it works, but my general understanding is there's a student body that will pass it, and then there's a uh, some sort of official adult organization that passes it. So it went through the student section, and they said, you know, this this went through, um, your decision is pending, we'll let you know. That was four, four pushing on five months ago, and I have not heard back from them. Millendorf was frustrated by the university's lack of response. But this isn't the first time he's gotten some blowback from the university about his interests. Last year, his presentation on mushrooms was shut down by the Willard Residential College Board. I think they were just so concerned that the topic of psychedelic mushrooms might come up that they didn't want to chance it. Psychedelics, or hallucinogens, have a complicated history on college campuses and in the U.S. at large. But today, they're at the center of a new movement in medicine. The psychedelic renaissance in medicine is uh, you know commonly said uh, by most people in the field to have started in 2006 when uh, Roland Griffiths and uh, associates at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, published a study uh, on uh, on using psilocybin to induce uh, mystical experiences. That's Dr. Brian Barnett. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry in Cleveland, Ohio. His work focuses around treatment-resistant mood disorders. And with that, Barnett has been conducting some interesting research on psychedelics. When I got to um, residency, uh, I quickly realized that there, uh, there are a large number of patients with psychiatric disorders um, who don't respond to, to um, you know, basically any treatment uh, that we have right now. Um, there's about a, a third of patients for most diagnoses uh, who are considered treatment resistant. Uh, and it's very difficult to help those patients find relief. And uh, I started digging into the history of, of psychedelics and uh, it was just uh, kind of floored. Barnett was surprised to find that in the 1950s and early 1960s, psychedelics were making a splash in medicine, just like they are now. LSD, psilocybin, uh, they were um, psychiatric medicines that were um, marketed. Um, you know, psych psychiatrists in the 50s and 60s um, used them to treat their patients. Uh, and then all that uh, sort of disappeared with the uh, beginning of the, the drug war uh, in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Indeed, about 40,000 patients if I recall, were treated with LSD and traditional psychotherapy between 1950 and 1965. 
and more than a thousand research papers on LSD and other psychedelics were published in that same period of time. That's Wesley Sharola. He's not a doctor, but he's passionate about psychedelic use in medicine. When he was at Northwestern, he wrote a series of op-eds for the Daily Northwestern. Each op-ed focused on government policies around different substances. When many of us hear the word psychedelics, I think it brings to mind images of the 1960s, of the hippies, of the music festivals, right? And I think that a lot of people would be surprised to find out that these infamous drugs actually can have very powerful therapeutic effects. Barnett and Sharola both noted that psychedelics could be uniquely valuable in therapy. LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA have all been shown to be useful in treating multiple mental health issues. Psychedelics really raise the question of, um, are mental illnesses really just um, different forms of cognitive rigidity? You know, people getting stuck in weird patterns that, that manifest differently. So then, if psychedelics are so useful, why are we just now getting around to normalizing their usage? Sharola thinks that lingering stigma is one reason. Psychedelics are not just drugs of the counterculture, and that they're nothing like opioids or cocaine in terms of their potentially negative and dangerous effects. The war on drugs seems to be a key sticking point. But stigma might not be the only roadblock. Barnett noted that practicality could play a big role, too. So LSD can last you know, twice as long as psilocybin, and that really matters for clinical care because, um, you know, if, if it's going to take, you know, 12 hours that you have to be with this patient and two therapists have to be present in the room, um, that's a huge amount of uh, medical resources that, that are being consumed. There's, there's real concern um, that uh, psychedelic therapy, because it is so resource intensive, that uh, the, uh, the reimbursement from insurance companies will be too low to um, entice uh, therapists to um, offer that as a service. So there's yeah, big issues around equity. Um, you know, the financial issues, but um, uh, access for minority groups as well. So it seems that for as far as psychedelics have come, they've got much farther to go. Maybe they'll become less stigmatized and perhaps even legalized in medicine. Maybe then other areas of our culture will become more receptive to them. Maybe Northwestern will let Millendorf make his club. Psychedelics can be dangerous, right? But you can think about it kind of as like driving a car. Like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't let like a 10 year old drive a car, you like wouldn't want to drink and drive a car. You wouldn't want to like drive if you don't know how, if you're inexperienced, right? But like if you know how it's done, there's really not that much of a problem. Like, yeah, you might be like stressed out during traffic or whatever, but like, you, you know, you'll get through it. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rao. And now it's time for the B List, WNUR News's weekly pop culture roundup. Reporter Ellie Skelly has this week's gossip, which is all about men. Welcome to The B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, men on men on men. We dive deep into the ones who have let us down, are on thin ice, and who we possibly could have some hope for. Starting off strong with Ned Fulmer. Oh, Ned. Your charming pseudo-loyalty almost made us forget that, after all, you are a straight white man. The once-beloved BuzzFeed protege and one-fourth of the popular YouTube group The Try Guys was confirmed to be cheating on his wife last Tuesday. The self-proclaimed wife guy was part of a consensual workplace relationship with producer Alex Herring. She was engaged at the time. 
Ned and his wife Ariel say they are currently working things out for the sake of their two sons. On the field and thin ice, Tom Brady's decision to not retire is causing strain in his marriage to Giselle Bunchen. A source close to the couple told CNN that the two are experiencing, quote, marital issues and are currently choosing to, quote, live separately. Earlier last month, Bunchen told Elle magazine that she has concerns about him playing and wishes he were more present with their family. And now for a man we could maybe root for. Dream, the popular Minecraft playing YouTuber, who we now can call Clay, revealed his face yesterday in a video titled, Hi, I'm Dream. Before unveiling his identity to the masses, the gamer teased the reveal by FaceTiming several of his internet friends including Addison Ray. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear about what's happening this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Ellie Skelly. And now a look at the weather. Right now, it's 58 degrees and sunny in Evanston. Skies will be clear tonight as temperatures drop to a low of 47 degrees. Tomorrow will warm up a bit with sunny skies and a high of 69 degrees during the day. A few clouds will start to roll in in the evening, and the night will have a low of 50 degrees. And Wednesday will feel like summer is back, with a high of 73 degrees, even with partly cloudy skies blocking some of the sunshine. That cloud coverage will strengthen overnight as temps drop to 55 degrees ahead of a cold snap later in the week. And taking a look at today's headlines. Numerous cracks have appeared in the concrete slab floor of Evanston's Robert Crown, Robert Crown Community Center. The city's engineering bureau chief reported that both the building's architect and its construction manager believe the cracks are within acceptable limits. Nevertheless, Evanston City Council approved paying a Northbrook engineering firm $12,800 to investigate the cracks at their meeting last Monday. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot pitched her 2023 draft budget to the city council Monday morning, asking aldermen to, quote, be bold with me. The plan totals $16.4 billion in spending, with the mayor referring to it as a, quote, stability budget. An increase in revenues this year allowed Lightfoot to scrap an expected hike in property taxes, which may affect the campaign landscape ahead of the city elections in spring 2023. Planned Parenthood will launch its first mobile abortion clinic in southern Illinois by the end of the year, the organization announced Monday. It will initially offer only medical abortions before expanding to procedural abortions and will focus on serving the border regions near Missouri, Kentucky, and Indiana, which have seen wait times skyrocket following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The mobile unit will be 37 feet long and offer two full exam rooms. The death toll of Hurricane Ian passed 100 people Monday as search and rescue operations continue. At least 54 people have died in Lee County, which holds the city of Cape Coral, and 24 deaths have been confirmed in neighboring Charlotte County. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Sarah Cadora, and our reporters are Justine Fisher, Emily Tiatonio, Allison Rauch, and Ellie Skelly. From all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Alex Harrison. Thanks for listening. Catch our next newscast on Wednesday, October 5th at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming. <laughs>